take your Bibles and we're going to start a new book tonight. And that's going to be the book of Ezra. Ezra is what is known as a post-exilic writer. He and uh, Nehemiah uh, were authors of those two books by the names Ezra and Nehemiah. And they uh, wrote these particular books sometime after the end of the Babylonian captivity. They were contemporaries along with um, a few others like Esther and Mordecai. Remember Esther, the book of Esther, and her uncle Mordecai were instrumental in helping the Jews uh, survive the threat of annihilation at the same period of time that Ezra and Nehemiah were alive. Now, this book of Ezra is, again, one of the post-exilic authors uh, of history. He and um, uh, Nehemiah hold that particular place in this Old Testament scripture that we have. But we also had prophets that were post-exilic prophets. Uh, There were Zechariah and Haggai and also Malachi later. But uh, Zechariah and Haggai predated Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. And they were actually prophesying just around the time of the end of the Babylonian captivity, whereas Ezra and Nehemiah actually lived about 80 or 100 years after that fact. But I'm reminded also there are other prophets as well, like Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, who were all of them contemporaries around the time that Zechariah and Haggai were writing. So they are all listed as post-exilic or uh, during the period of the exile prophets who spoke about the things that God had commanded them to speak with regard to the nation of Israel. And so this particular book is going to basically skip the entire period of the kings We ended last time in our study together in the book of Judges where the last judge had already uh, passed on from the scene and it's immediately after the book of Judges that we begin in the Old Testament scriptures the study of the period of the kings starting with King Saul going all the way through to the Babylonian captivity and that took place beginning in the year 605 B.C., And Jerusalem ultimately was completely destroyed by the year 586 B.C. And that was by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. One of the things that I wanted to point out as we begin our study in Ezra is the historicity of all of these things as it is recorded for us in the various portions of Scripture in the Old Testament that refer to them. So before we get actually into the study of the book of Ezra, I want to give us a little bit more detail than I sometimes do in an introduction of any of the books that we typically study. But it's important for us to realize the the scope of what is being dealt with here by the writer whose name is Ezra and the time frame in which it is happening and the statements that were recorded in the Old Testament scriptures that had to do with these particular events. I want to first go back all the way to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25. I'm not going to read from that, but I want to point out that in Leviticus chapter 25, which was written by Moses many, many years before these events that will unfold before us here tonight. But in that book, Leviticus 25, Moses tells the people that they are to give the land what he referred to as a Sabbath rest. Remember, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, but it wasn't just a seven-day period that was implied when they were to observe a Sabbath. There were several Sabbaths, and one of the other Sabbaths that was very, very critically important for the people of Israel to obey and observe was what was called the land's Sabbath. So every seven years, the land was to rest on the seventh year completely. They were an agricultural society. 
They were not to plant any crops in that seventh year and trust that the Lord would provide enough food from the larger crops that would come in the sixth year to last them all the way until the very first harvest in the eighth year. That was a time of trusting the Lord, but also it was important from the Lord's perspective because it was another example of God's faithfulness to his people. But agriculturally, it benefited the land as well. Now, when they entered into the land, and up until the time of the Babylonian captivity, they had not observed that seven-day, seven-year, rather, rest of the land. For a period of 490 years, they did not remember to obey that command in the book of Leviticus given to them by Moses. And so, one of the things that we want to point out is the consequence of that forgetfulness of the people to obey the Sabbath command of God resulted in a disciplinary action by the Lord. And it's given to us in a few other places. I'd like to have you turn back to the book of Second Chronicles, which, by the way, is only one page to the left. You'll find the passage that I will be referring to. It's Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning with verse 20, where it says... And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath, as long as she delayed, or as long as she laid desolate and kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So 490 divided by 7 is a period of 70 years that they had to pay back to the Lord. And that was partly the reason why they were in captivity. There were many, many other reasons as well. It's because of their having served the idols of the Canaanites. They were being punished by the Lord for their rejection of him. But the bottom line is God used that period of judgment to bring to pass the 70-year restitution of the land as a result of their having neglected the Sabbath uh, requirement. Now, in the book of Jeremiah, I'd like you to turn there with me now, in chapter 25, we find that is where this command is given. In chapter 25, verse 11, it tells us, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Again, in chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah, We read these words in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God had told the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah that the land would be completely desolate, that they would be taken out of the land for a period of seven, 70 years to fulfill that which was required by the Sabbath year requirement given in Leviticus 25. So amazing thing that God is doing here. It's something that we need to recognize. God sees the beginning from the end. He knows all things. And he's in control of every detail of all of these various things that are going on in the world today, as well as in that day, because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is the God who makes promises and fulfills them, prophesies of things to come, and there is no other like him in terms of his ability to prophetically state the things that have not yet happened and have them come to pass exactly as he has said it, is proof by his own words, that prophecy being fulfilled is proof that he alone is God. He tells us that 
in Isaiah chapter 41. He tells us that in Isaiah 44, in Isaiah 45, in other places. But I am going to ask you now to turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 44, and we're going to read a portion of Isaiah's prophecies beginning from verse 28, because it's there that this book of Ezra begins. It begins with an introduction in verse 1 of the book of Ezra of a man named Cyrus. And before we read that portion, turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 44 at verse 28. Isaiah 44, verse 28. And it tells us there, speaking of the Lord, he who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, verse 1 of chapter 45 continues, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Notice, going back again to verse 28 of chapter 44, it tells us that Cyrus is his shepherd. Cyrus is a Persian king, a Gentile. He has been the one that God chose to bring the nation of Babylon to its knees. Cyrus successfully invaded Babylon in the year 538 B.C. It's amazing the story that we have with regard to his being able to do that. If you look through the history, and it's mostly given to us by authors like Josephus and some of the Greek authors like Herodotus, that Cyrus brought his army against the city of Babylon which had a double wall, one of the largest walls surrounding a city completely, very large, very high, very thick. And the only entrance into the city was through the Euphrates River, which passed under the gates of the city. The main gates of the city were only accessible if you could get through the gates once they were open, because the water kept anyone from being able to get in otherwise. However, Cyrus developed a strategy. He diverted the Euphrates River just north of the city of Baghdad, uh, city of uh, uh, Babylon, and as the water was diverted, the river flowing under the gates lowered substantially. And they were able at night to sneak into the city of uh, Babylon, open the gates for the rest of the army to come in. In that one night, they surprised the king of Babylon and conquered the city and won a tremendous battle. Daniel had been there in Babylon on that very night. And it was at a great party that was going on by Belteshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And... Remember the story in Daniel where Daniel was brought in to interpret some writing on the wall that had mysteriously taken place. And Daniel prophesied that this very night, speaking to the king of Babylon, you will be completely destroyed. And so it was. It's also told by Josephus that Cyrus, when he came into the city to take control of the city, met with Daniel. 
And Daniel told Cyrus the prophecy that was written in Isaiah 44 and 45 about him. Take note of the fact that Isaiah was written around 180 years before Cyrus took the city of Babylon. 150 years before he was born, God named him and gave him that name, we're told, according to the book of Isaiah. So these are very important prophetic statements that are made in the Old Testament Scriptures that have been fulfilled specifically. And it's so very encouraging to me to see the detail that God gave in order to show himself to be God. And he said it again in Isaiah, as we read, he alone can do these things because he alone is God. And so now we come into this story that Ezra is now beginning to unfold. Now, the first six chapters of the book of Ezra are, from Ezra's perspective, historic. They happened before he came on the scene. But he's relating those things that took place that began around the first year of Cyrus's reign in 539-538 B.C. So he was probably dealing with something very, very close to a 70 years from the very beginning of the Babylonian captivity that began in 605 and ended around 537 or 536 B.C. in the first year of Cyrus the king, just as Jeremiah had said. It tells us now in verse 1 that Ezra records these words, and they're the same words basically that were recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 36 at the end of the book of Second Chronicles. Ezra was most likely the author of the Chronicles as well as the book of Ezra. There are some places in Ezra that he refers to himself in the first person. So internally we have the evidence that he himself was indeed the author of this book. And Again, he's assumed to be the author of First and Second Chronicles as well. He also was a scribe who had been given a great deal of responsibility in captivity to record much of the writings of Moses and other Old Testament scriptures that he put together. He's given the, uh, the fame of being the man who put the Psalms together in the order that we have them in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was a priest, not a high priest, but he was a priest descending from Zadok and Eliezer uh, and Aaron, of course, uh, the high priests that began the priestly ministry back in Moses' day. So he has a lineage from his ancestry all the way back to Aaron. And it's also said about him that not only was a scribe, and a priest, but he also uh, established the Sanhedrin, which was very, very important during the time of Jesus. He introduced the Pharisees to the nation of Israel. He introduced synagogues to the nation of Israel. So he's a very important person, not given much credit at all by very many people, but God gives him a great deal of credit because he was a man that God had used tremendously in his time. And now he's writing again this particular book that we know of as the book of Ezra. And again, it begins with the words, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place Help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus is making a declaration. He's telling the people of Israel, you're free. You can go back to your homeland. You can leave Babylon, 
We're no longer going to keep you captive here. You're welcome to go. It's your decision to make. I'm not making a mandate that you have to, but if you want to, you can do it. It's interesting to me that it tells us here in verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to say these things, to make this proclamation. It's a very important proclamation indeed because it's the ending of that 70 years of Babylonian captivity that has come to pass exactly as God has said it would. It was the time to be done, and Cyrus was the king to accomplish that. Remember, he's a Persian king. He conquered Babylon. He conquered Babylon again in 538 or 539 B.C., but he was actually king of Persia well back into the middle of that century. In 559 B.C., apparently, he took the the reign of the kingdom of Persia. But Persia then was not a threat to Babylon. Babylon was still very much the power to be dealt with until Cyrus defeated Babylon. And he defeated all the other kingdoms in the world, and now the then known world, he is the king over all the world as it is known in that day. That's quite amazing. But he is a generous man and he's offering this privilege to the people of God because he recognizes that their God is God. Again, in verse 3 it says, Build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. Now, he is a heathen, but he's also come to the realization, and I believe precisely by virtue of the fact that Daniel had introduced himself to Cyrus and became a member of Cyrus's court for his last years of his life, that these things came to be because of Daniel's influence with Cyrus. I'd like to read a little bit more of something that is important with regard to these prophecies uh, that Daniel also mentioned. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, it tells us that Daniel was realizing that they had been in captivity for now pretty close to 70 years. Not quite, but in the time of his writing this and seeing this particular vision that he's about to see, in chapter 9 as it's recorded, Daniel realizes that the captivity must be coming to an end soon. And so he seeks the Lord. It says in verse 2 of chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, in the first year of his reign, speaking of the reign of uh, Cyrus, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications to find out what it was that, that would happen in order for that prophecy from Jeremiah would become a reality. Take note of the fact that he had the writings of Jeremiah available to him. He knew what Jeremiah had written in verse chapters 25 and 29 regarding the 70 years of captivity. But in that prayer that Daniel then proceeds to make, that is followed by a visitation from an angel. And the angel tells Daniel, not specifically about that 70 years that have already been fulfilled, or will soon be fulfilled, according to what Jeremiah had spoken, but now the angel of the Lord gives Daniel a new period of 70 years that will be for the people of Israel that will come after Daniel's time, and it's a great promise to the people of God. That 70 years that Daniel speaks of is a 70 years that God is going to deal with his people Israel in a very, very unique and special way. And all of that is to say that God had prepared Daniel with the inquiry that he made with regard to the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah to introduce him to a 70-year period that he would be given with regard to a future time for the people of Israel. And we know that 
as the 70 weeks of Daniel, that 69 of those weeks have already passed. And there is a seven-week period of years, really, because that's what that prophecy in Daniel was all about. Not weeks of seven days, but weeks of years, or 490 years, 483 years of those have been fulfilled, and the last seven years have not been fulfilled. And we know those last seven years to be the time of the tribulation that will come in our day, someday very soon indeed. So all of these things are given to us as we study this wonderful book of Ezra. Keep in mind that that God is doing great things, both in Ezra's day and because we know that what he did then was fulfilled entirely, that what he prophesied in Daniel regarding the last days will definitely come to pass as well. So there is a period of time that we are yet to observe in fulfillment of the word of God that he has spoken so many, many years ago. So back into the book of Ezra, Continuing on in verse 5 where it says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all those, all whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. Notice that it says, All of those, the priests and the people of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, they were given this impetus by the Spirit of God. It says God had moved on them. It's the same phrase that was given to us in verse 1 with regard to Cyrus, where it says God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. God stirred up the spirits of these men in captivity of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the Levites so that they would arise and go and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not exactly sure we know how many people were in captivity. Uh, Some believe it was several hundred thousand, perhaps even a million or more in captivity. Whatever the number was, they didn't all return to Jerusalem, to Judah. In fact, slightly less than 50,000 will return in this initial phase that Israel is here recording for us. But those are the ones that God had moved. Let us not forget, if God doesn't move them to go, then they shouldn't go. And I'm mindful of the fact that that really does apply in our present day as well. God does choose to send certain individuals to go. Others, he chooses to have them stay and to support those that go. And that's precisely what is being done here. There were some 50,000 souls who would go into Jerusalem, into Judea, and the others who stayed behind were instructed by Cyrus, the king of Persia, to provide for them silver and gold and livestock and goods so that they could have what they needed to make the journey, which, by the way, was about 900 miles and would take several weeks, perhaps months, to get from the Babylon area into Jerusalem because it's over a desert area. They were bringing women and children, livestock, carts, and all kinds of stuff that they had to bring with them in order to make the trip, make the journey there. It would have been a very time-consuming and dangerous journey indeed. But only 50,000 souls of them went. Now, another reason that they probably were limited to just that number was because Remember, Jeremiah had told the people while he was in Jerusalem, just before the captivity began, that they would go into captivity, and he instructed them, settle down, prosper there, God will bless you, live out your lives there, and trust that God is in control, and don't worry about a thing, because you can indeed live a comfortable life, even though you are in captivity. He told them that. And they did that. They became quite prosperous. Many of them became merchants, quite wealthy. And apparently that may have also been partly why they didn't want to go back. But because they did have a great degree of wealth, 
they were able to provide much help to those who did go. And that's so very important. We send out missionaries, and we support several of them financially, and that's a wonderful blessing. It's the same thing with the idea that when David went into battle, there were some who were too tired to go, but they stayed home with the women and children while the other men went with David. Well, David and his men who went to the battle had a great victory, and they took the spoils from that victory, and they came back to the city from which they came. And the men who went with him to battle did not want to share the spoils with those who did not want to go. But David said, that's not going to happen, folks. They are just as much important to me because of what they did in keeping the city stable and safe. So they had a responsibility they should be rewarded for their responsibility. Others who went with David to the battle had a responsibility, and they too should be rewarded for their part in that which was done. That's exactly how God does operate still today, and I'm so grateful for that. But he tells us in verse 6, And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. So they treated them very kindly and generously. They gave them all that they need and more besides. And so it says in verse 7, King Cyrus also helped out as well because he brought out all the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. When Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, he took all of the gold and silver, all the cups, all of the knives, all of the hardware, everything that was used within the temple, worship of God, and brought them to Babylon and stored them in a place of safety there in Babylon. Remember, I mentioned the night that Babylon was conquered and Belteshazzar was celebrating uh, his greatness and uh, getting drunk with all of his court, and they decided to get all of the vessels from that which was stored by Nebuchadnezzar that had been from Jerusalem in the temple. And they were using those cups to drink their wine and strong drink. It's one of the reasons why God judged them so severely. But they had those available still when Cyrus came and conquered, and now he's got them available to him. And instead of keeping them himself, he's going to turn them over to those who are going to Jerusalem so that when they build their temple, they will have the implements to use for the worship of their God in Jerusalem. What a remarkable king this man Cyrus was. So again, it says, it says in verse 8, And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now we're going to see the name Sheshbazar uh, more than once through the writing of the book of Ezra. It is the apparently the Babylonian name that was given to a man named Zerubbabel. He is a man of God. He is also a man who uh, is going to be instrumental in getting the temple built. He's one of those that are going to be used by the Lord in these early days when they make their way to Jerusalem and begin the work that is before them. Cyrus instructs his treasurer to give him these items. And then he tells us in verses 9 to the end of the chapter the specific details of what was given. In verse 9 it says, This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. Look at the detail. 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's a wonderful story of great blessing for the people of God to realize that they can leave their captivity, be freed to go to the land of their heritage and see Jerusalem, almost all of them, for the very first time. There'll be very, very few who would have still been alive that had been alive when the captivity first began. Remember, it began in 605 B.C. It was done in stages. It happened again later in 597 B.C. that another group of captives were taken. And then finally in 586 B.C., the final group of captives were taken. So some of these 
people who are alive in Babylon would have been part of one of those captivities that had been taken out of Jerusalem. That's important as we read further on in the text, but we're not going to get that far tonight. But I want you to see that what is taking place now is that God, in his sovereignty, is doing some very, very amazing things. And in the doing of them, he doesn't neglect the importance of recognizing particular individuals who are taking part in that. So chapter 2 is a very, very long chapter, 70 verses long, and it's almost completely a list of names. Now, under the circumstances, there's probably enough, not enough time for us to do a particular line-by-line reading of every one of these, and I would do a terrible job of messing up all of those names. But I want you to realize this. Every name that's given here is a name that is special to God. I'm convinced of that. In Psalm 87, verse 6, it tells us that the Lord shall count the people. And he says, this one was born there, speaking of those who were born in Jerusalem. He takes very careful note, even of every individual by name. And I'm convinced that though we may not recognize or want to try to pronounce all of these names, a reading of these names should give us a real sense of how important our name is to God. And it's so very, very important for us to realize that there is a book that our name is written in. We have been, who are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, recorded in God's book of life. And that's a very, very important thing to recognize. So as we go through this particular chapter, and no, I'm not going to read all those names, but I'm going to hope that perhaps you'll take the time to read through them. It doesn't only give the names of individuals, but it gives a total number of individuals who are part of that particular individual's family. But I'm going to read a short portion of chapter 2 before we get the list of names, or too far into the list anyway, where it says in verse 1, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel, and again, that is the man Sheshbazzar in the previous chapter, there were Jeshua, or Joshua, and he's going to play an important role. Zerubbabel would have been the religious leader, and Joshua, or rather the civil leader, and Joshua was the priest who would be the priestly ruler, ruler or leader in that first return to the city. So Zerubbabel and Joshua are important, very important characters. And they're mentioned by Zechariah and Haggai as well. So here we have these names. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua, Nehemiah, and that's not the Nehemiah who wrote the book of Nehemiah, but an earlier man named Nehemiah. Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Beana. The number of the men of the people of Israel are these. Now, those that were just mentioned in verse 2 were leaders that were with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. I mentioned Nehemiah was not the same Nehemiah as the Nehemiah of the book by that name, nor is this man named um, Mordecai the same as the Mordecai that was the uncle of Esser. They came later. So did Ezra. Ezra is not part of this particular Return because he doesn't come on the scene until 80 years from this point. So the first six chapters again of the book of Ezra are recording the first series of events that took place around 536 in the short time following. Ezra and Nehemiah will come together to the nation of Israel, to Judah, in the year 440. Eight, I believe, or 449 B.C., several years later. But in this list of names, again, gives us the count of all the people who came. And if, if you read down all the way through to uh, verse 60, 
Yes, verse 60 in chapter 2. And if you were to count all of the numbers, you would come up with a total of 49,000 plus. And there's a few more that are mentioned in the last verses, which we are going to spend a little bit more time reading about. Chapter 2, verse 61 says, And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habai, the sons of Kaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. It's interesting to me that he mentions Barzillai, a Gileadite. He's a Gentile. Remember the story when David had to leave Jerusalem because his son Absalom had usurped the throne and he was running for his life. And there was a battle that came shortly after that event where David's men defeated Absalom's men. Absalom was killed and David now has come back to Jerusalem to regain his throne. But Barzillai is a man who comes up to David and he has been a help to David. He's provided David with the, the things that David and his men needed for sustenance while they were in exile from Jerusalem. David was so appreciative of Barzillai having done that that he invited Barzillai to come into his court and eat at his table. But Barzillai was a very old man. He was in his 80s and he said to David, I so appreciate the fact that you would ask me to do this. It's such an honor. But I'm an old man. I can hardly see. I can hardly taste. It wouldn't benefit me that much. Let me stay home and die in my own place. But take my sons with you instead. And so David did take some of the family of Barzillai into his court and they ate at his table daily. Just like Mephibosheth did, the son of Saul, the king before David. David was a generous man, a righteous man, a forgiving heart. And he gave blessing to those, though they didn't deserve it, special care as he did with Barzillai's children. Now, that's important as we look into this portion of the scripture that we just read, because Barzillai is mentioned as one of those who was an ancestor to those who came into Jerusalem from captivity. It tells us in verse 62, these sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy. These are referring to the sons of the priests. But there was a problem. The ones that he's mentioned that are descendants from Barzillai were actually Levites who took the name of Bar Barzillai because they had married the daughters of Barzillai. But they were Levites and they thought they had a right to enter the land of Israel into Judah and serve as Levites in the built temple. But the problem was this. They saw, it says in verse 62, they're listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. So what we're seeing here is the fact that they kept very, very meticulous records of their ancestry. They knew who their fathers were, their grandfathers and great-grandfathers. They could go all the way back to Adam if they were asked to. And they were recorded in a book of registry, just as we read about in Psalm 87, verse 6, where the Lord keeps track of all of those names. They did a very good job. The problem was this. Those descendants of Barzillai's daughters didn't have their record in the registry. And as a result, they couldn't prove that they were Levites. As a result of that, they were excluded from being able to serve. But it says in verse 63, And the governor said to them that they should not eat for the most holy, of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Now this is one of the last mentions of the Urim and Thummim. Remember in the books of Moses, they were instrumental in helping the people of Israel to find their way because they would use the Urim and the Thummim to inquire of the Lord. We don't know what the Urim and the Thummim actually were. Most believe they were a couple of stones that were kept in a pouch in the high priest's vest. And he would take one of the stones out and they were probably white and black stones and whether it was a white stone, it would give an answer yes. If it were a black stone, it would give an answer no. That was 
the assumption that many have made over the years as to what the Urim and the Thummim were, but we frankly do not really, really know. But they were still in existence in Ezra's day, or in the time of Zerubbabel, at least, when the temple was now being built. The whole assembly together, it tells us in verse 64, were 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses, accounted also, were 736, their mules, 245, their camels, 435, and their donkeys, 6,720. So their animals that they brought with them from Babylon are counted as well. All of their livestock. doesn't mention any of the sheep or goats, but I'm sure that they must have been counted as well. But these are the work animals that they're referring to here. Well, verse 68 says, Some of the heads of the father's house, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Great wealth involved in this. They brought much wealth back from Babylon. There was much that was given, but much was required. And that's something that we need to remember as well as we serve our Lord. He's given us much, but to whom he has given much, much is required. Let us remember that as we continue serving the Lord in these last hours. Let's finish with this last verse in chapter 2, verse 70, which says, So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. So they spread out throughout the territory of Judah. The Nethanim, by the way, were servants originally of David and Solomon. And they were many of them Gentiles as well. And they were taking part in this grand venture that is taking place in Judah. They are repopulating the land that had been barren, empty for 70 years. And now they're back in the land and they're about to begin the work that needed to be done in order to restore the temple. I want to remind you also that I've mentioned Nehemiah as a contemporary of Ezra. It's very important to understand that part of the prophecies that Daniel spoke of in chapter 9 that I referred to of the 70 weeks of Daniel, in that prophecy it was mentioned that there would be a decree that would be written to build the walls of Jerusalem. And from that time until the end would be the 490 years that would ultimately be fulfilled. Ezra is speaking of the building of the temple. It happened in 537 or 536 B.C. That is not a fulfillment of what Daniel had spoken in his prophecy regarding the last days. That prophecy specifically said the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra is not recording here the rebuilding of the walls. Nehemiah does that. When we get to the book of Nehemiah, should the Lord tarry, we'll see that Nehemiah gives a specific starting date of Daniel's prophecy. But here, the work of building the temple is a priority. And it's something that is so very important. God wants worship. And so he begins to make the return of the people of God into the land of Israel based upon that need for them to worship God. And keep in mind, they went into captivity because they worshipped other gods. They had idols that they worshipped, that they believed were good enough, and God was not the only God that they served. And as a result of that, they were punished severely. But God, in His grace and mercy, brought them back into the land, and when they came back into the land, they did not bring their idols back with them. There was no idol worship from that point on until the time of Christ because God had dealt with them so severely and they learned their lesson well.
They had other problems, but that wasn't one of them. So bringing us back to our day, how does this apply to us? Well, I, I indicated earlier that because God does exactly the same things today as he has always done, that there is still an important aspect of what he did there that he wants to do here in this present hour. He sent others out into the field. We have been sent into this area. This is our mission work that God has given us. But more than that, we want to continue to support those who do go forward and work in the mission fields, wherever they may be. And quite frankly, I'm convinced that the United States is every bit as much a mission field as any one of the countries in the world today. We are so far from God in this nation. We're getting further and further away from the truth of God's word, from trusting in God's provision. We reject Him in so many ways. Even in the church, there is a turning away from true worship. That should never be, but it is happening. And I'm concerned for us in this nation because I don't want to see us fall, but I'm afraid that we will. We are going down a slippery slope very, very quickly. More and more things are happening on a daily basis that indicate quite strongly that this nation is running headlong into a time of trouble such as we have not known. And I hope that's not the case. But if it should be, then we are to stand. We are to be faithful. Whatever happens, if the lights go out, if the heat gets turned off, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? The only answer I can give you at this point is we need to trust God for those things. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that God has the answer. So until those things actually do unfold, let us be fully aware of the fact that we can indeed continue to do the work that God has called us to do. In these last days, let us be faithful to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace.